Hello there, I'm Justin, and welcome to today's episode of The Pickup Line. Today we're going to be talking more about orality and literacy, uh, some really interesting stuff now we're getting into, and tying some of that into one of my favorite TV shows of all time, Netflix's The OA. Uh, thanks for tuning in, let's get to it! Thanks for joining me today on the pickup line. I want to start, um, we're, we're about 70 pages into a rally in literacy now, and we're in a section here. Um, the, the general the, the general section is called Some Psychodynamics of Orality, but the, the subheading here is called Verbo, Verbo Motor Lifestyle. Um, and Ong writes, much in the foregoing account of orality can be used to identify what can be called verb, Verbo Motor... <laughs> verbomotor cultures, that is, cultures in which, by contrast with high technology cultures, courses of action and attitudes toward issues depend significantly more on effective use of words, and thus on human interaction, and significantly less on nonverbal, often largely visual input from the objective world of things. I think this is becoming more and more relevant uh, as we progress into a much more technologically and literate, literate literate driven world um in 2020 um relying much more on how we communicate through our screens and through our apps and through our social media networks and perhaps on how we communicate personally interpersonally uh, ang continues to say it should of course be noted that words and objects are never totally disjunct words represent objects and perception of objects is in part conditioned by the store of words into which perceptions are nested nature states no facts these come only within statements devised by human beings to refer to the seamless web of actuality around them. Um, it's an interesting idea, thinking about how humanity is what has sort of given word to the natural world, right? A, a tree never called itself a tree. Uh, we did that. Um, he goes on to say, uh, on goes on to say, over, over, overvaluing and certainly overpricing rhetoric. In primary oral cultures, even business is not business. It is fundamentally rhetoric. Purchasing something at a Middle East souk or bazaar is not as simple is not a simple economic transaction as it would be at Woolworths and as high economic transaction, excuse me, uh, and as a high economic transaction as it would I'm, I'm not doing too good today. Um, and as a high technology culture is likely to presume, it would be in the nature of things. Rather, it is a series of verbal and somatic maneuvers, a polite duel, a contest of wits, an operation in oral agnostis. Agnostis. Agnostic. Yeah, that's what I thought. An operation in oral agnostic. Um, you know, we we hear we see this this idea, this theme repeated throughout this this whole piece of writing. This idea that you know rhetoric is everything, which is something that I believe in, and I teach my students, and I have worked my entire career to put that idea forward that everything is rhetoric. Um, there's a rhetoric to to and any any text in the most liberal sense of the word that we're creating, whether that be a social interaction, a, a video game live stream, or a formal academic essay. You know, there are maneuvers that we are making in all of those situations. Um, Ang goes on to say, he gives this really interesting example about um, this little story. Uh, I, I'd like to just read some more here. Uh, Ang says, in oral cultures, a request for information is commonly interpreted interactively. Uh, and he, he quotes Malinowski from 1923 there. Um, As agnostic and instead of being really answered is frequently parade. So 
sort of like this idea that a question is, is never just given an answer in oral cultures. It's often a uh, parade or, or uh, retorted with. Um, Ong says, an illuminating story is told of a visitor in County Cork, Ireland, an especially oral region in a country which in every region preserves massive residual orality. The visitor saw a corkman leaning against the post office. He went up to him, pounded with his hand on the post office wall next to the corkman's shoulder and asked, is this the post office? The corkman was not taken in. He looked at his questioner quietly and with great concern. Twouldn't be a postage stamp you were looking for, would it? He treated the inquiry not as a request for information, but as something the inquirer was doing to him. So he did something in turn to the inquirer to see what would happen. All natives of Cork, according to the mythology, treat all questions this way. Always answer a question by asking another question. Never let down your oral guard. So it's just an interesting sort of way that social interaction occurs in, prim in primary oral cultures. Um, um, continues and says, oral communication unites people in groups. Writing and reading are solitary activities that throw the psyche back on itself. A teacher speaking to a class which he feels and which feels itself as a close-knit group finds that if the class is asked to pick up its textbooks and read a given passage, the unity of the group vanishes as each person enters into his or her own private life world. I cannot tell you how true that statement is. As a teacher, someone that's been teaching college-level students for the last 10 years of his life, um, I never, I very, very rarely ask students to do this kind of um, interior work during class time, this uh, sort of withdrawing action, uh, read something, sit there quietly and, and, and read a passage and respond to it, or, um, you know, even, even to the extent of like sit there and do writing or do some of your work in class, we do a lot of that kind of workshopping thing, but it's always a social experience. Uh, it's an exterior experience rather than an interior experience. And I always try to promote that because I think Ong is absolutely right here. As soon as you ask students to, or readers or, or anyone to kind of withdraw into that literate text field, uh, there's something is lost. There's a there's something lost there, and it's that sense of morality. It's that sense of of social uh, presence that is lost. And and as soon as we withdraw into our mind's voice uh, as we read a text quietly in our heads. So more on interior and exterior in the next part of the podcast. Stay with us. Welcome back. Thanks so much for staying with us on the pickup line. Um, before we get into the next part of Ong's orality and literacy, which I find to be fascinating in so many ways, I want to take a quick, a quick moment to frame this discussion uh, around the context of, of a show that I um, love isn't strong enough a word, uh, a show that influenced my life in significant ways, that made me think about the world in different ways, um, made me re-see and re-evaluate a lot of the things that I th thought true of myself, of the world around me. Uh, anytime a show can challenge me in that way, that's a top-notch piece of art in my view. Um, and we're going to come back to this particular show, uh, I think, several times on this podcast as we read this book. But this is the first time I really see some connection with it. And that show is, is a show called The OA. 
Um, it's a show on Netflix. It's kind of getting older now. It's been around for a while. Um, there's two seasons of it. Sadly, uh, it was planned as a five-season arc, a five-season story. Um, and those last three seasons were really important to the telling of that overall story. And unfortunately, Netflix, uh, in their internal wisdom, saw fit to cancel the show after season two. Uh, and the community of fans around the OA were, were devastated by this. And there's still people out there on social media, myself included, who are trying to find a way to bring the OA back and save it and um, maybe move it to a different network or, or something. Um, because there's such richness there. And if you haven't had a chance to watch it, I would highly suggest that you watch it and really give it a chance. It doesn't really, you don't really start to understand what the show is, is about until about episode four or five. Um, so, uh, warning, uh, I might get into some spoilers for the OA in this next little discussion segment, so, I, you know, maybe, I'll try to avoid those, but if you don't want to know anything about it, you want to go in just cold, um, maybe just skip this part. Um, so this next page, this next section of morality and literacy I thought is great, um, and it's, it's, the, the title of it is The Interiority of Sound, um. Ang kind of begins this by stating, Sound exists only when it is going out of existence. Other characteristics of sound also determine or influence oral psychodynamics. The principal one of these characteristics is the unique relationship of sound to interiority when sound is compared to the rest of the senses. And he goes on to discuss this really interesting kind of breakdown of the way that our senses work, especially sight. Um, and he just talks, he does, he quotes some folks who have done work around this area, but um, he talks about sight as sort of a... Um, a separating mechanic. Our eyes work and our vision works through a process of separation. Um, we understand light and dark because of contrast, because we're separating lightness from darkness. We understand depth because we're separating foreground from background. Uh, our eyes are constantly sort of breaking down, separating, uh, dis distilling, um, breaking things up into their composite parts, right? We see colors in, you know, in a spectrum of colors, right? Uh, it's, it's a breakdown. It's a hierarchy that our, that our visual spectrum is, is doing. Um, in direct contrast to that, uh, our hearing is a harmonious uh, exercise. And Ong writes, um, well, first, he, he gives this really great example, this really great idea about uh, the, the idea that, that hearing can register interiority without violating it. Um, so he gives this example of a box, talks about how the only way to ascertain if that box is full or empty, um, you could touch it, um, you could poke your hand through the wall of the box and discover what's inside of it. That's one way, but you would, you would, you would sort of, uh, violate that interiority. Um, but if you lightly tapped on the box, your sound, your sound senses could tell you if that box was empty or full. You can tap on a wall to hear if it's hollow or not. Um, so we have this really interesting sort of like connection between, uh, sound and interiority. Uh, in the margins of the book I wrote, perhaps this is why music uh, feels so intimate to us, is because it's it's this sort of like way for someone else to kind of make their way into our interior, um, perhaps. Um, so Ong writes, and I just think this is great, sight isolates and sound incorporates. Whereas sight situates the observer outside what he views at a distance, sound pours into the hearer, 
Vision dissects, as Marlou Ponty has observed in 1961, vision comes to a human being from one direction at a time. To look at a room or a landscape, I must move my eyes around from one part to another. When I hear, however, I gather sound simultaneously from every direction at once. I am at the center of my auditory world, which envelops me, establishing me at a kind of core of sensation and existence. This centering effect of sound is what high-fidelity sound reproduction exploits with intense sophistication. You can immerse yourself in hearing, in sound. There's no way to immerse yourself similarly in sight. Well, maybe in 1989 there wasn't, but um, <laughs> but we're getting closer to maybe like that. Like thinking about resolution and 4K and 8K and the way that visual technologies, uh, VR, other things are, are sort of changing the way that we see. Um, there's maybe something to think about there. Ong continues... Um, by contrast with vision, the dissecting sense, sound is thus a unifying sense. A typical visual ideal is clarity and distinctness, a taking apart, according to Descartes' campaigning for clarity and distinctness, registered in intensification of vision in the human sensorium. Um, he does a reference to Descartes there, but Ong says, the auditory ideal, by contrast, is harmony, a putting together. Interiority and harmony are characteristics of human consciousness. The consciousness of each human person is totally interiorized, known to the person from the inside and inaccessible to any other person directly from the inside. Everyone who says I means something different by it from what every other person means. What is I to me is only you to you. And this I incorporates experience into itself by getting it all together. Knowledge is ultimately not a fractioning, but a unifying phenomenon. A striving for harmony. Without harmony, an interior condition, the psyche is in bad health. The body is a frontier between myself and everything else. On goes on to talk about this idea of what we mean by interior and exterior can be conveyed only by reference to experience of bodiliness. And he talks about how like our physical bodies um, can only understand interior and exterior through the relationship to other bodies like i am not me i am not you therefore i am me which is an interesting contrast to some buddhist thinking the idea that the opposite of that is true that we are all the same um you know we're all we're all together right like as you know like in the song wave by the midnight in my dream we're all melting together synchronized in a mass embrace um beads of water falling together in a north shore wave so like this sort of buddhist ideal of of all all things everything is everything um is distinctly i think in contrast to this idea that you know sound is this interior quality that's only for me that's just me um ong writes for the way in which the world is experienced is always mon is always momentous in psychic life the centering action of sound affects man's sense of the cosmos for oral cultures the cosmos is an ongoing event with man at its center only after print and the extensive experience with maps that print implemented would human beings when they thought about the cosmos or universe or world would think primarily of something laid out before their eyes in a modern printed atlas a vast surface or assemblage of surfaces ready to be explored the ancient oral world knew few explorers though it did know many itinerants travelers voyagers adventurers and pilgrims A sound-dominated verbal economy is consonant with aggregative harmonizing tendencies rather than with analytic dissecting tendencies. It is consonant also with the conservative holism 
rather than abstract thinking and a certain humanistic organization of knowledge around the actions of human and anthropomorphic beings, interiorized persons rather than around impersonal things. And all of this made me think about the OA. The initial premise of the show, The OA, is the story of Prairie Johnson, a woman who, for the majority of her life up until her mid-twenties, was blind. An accident during her childhood caused her to lose her sight. And reading this chapter and hearing this sort of distinction between what sound is and what sight is, it really made me reconsider the choice to make Prairie sort of to start the story with with the the, the ta- I remember reading on the Netflix tagline like what is the show about a, a blind woman returns after being kidnapped or missing for a long time only to find that her sight has returned as well and I was like oh okay that is this going to be like a true crime story is this going to be like what is this show actually about but that was what that was the, the thread that Netflix chose to sort of or whoever chose to promote the show as it was about. And the show is not about that. It's about so much more than that. But this idea makes a lot more sense to me now, having thought about it and read this chapter by Ong, because a big part of the show is this cosmic sense of unification, of coming together, of harmonizing, rather than than dissecting, of coming together rather than breaking apart. This theme, breaking apart, and coming back together, breaking apart and coming back together is constant throughout the OA. Um, in fact, I think an entire interpretation of the OA could be drawn from this idea of seeing the show and hearing the show. There's so much in the show about sound and orality and hearing. Uh, there's so much in the show about movement, about physically embodying ideas. There's so much in the show about cosmic notions of where we fit in in the universe and what we are and what the universe actually is um at one point quite late in season two there's even this sort of like strange phenomenon that that occurs that has to do with plants that sort of starts in in someone's ear uh there's a lot of ear imagery at the end of season two um, so when I first watched the show, I was like, what's the point of the being blind? Like the, the blind mechanic, was that just like a plot device? Was that just something that they, that Zal and Brit put in to further the plot, to make it more interesting, to make Prairie a more vulnerable character, to make her story more compelling because she couldn't use her sight? Uh, but no, no, it was not that. Uh, having read this chapter, it's really made me rethink that decision. And I think that Prairie is blind for this very reason, so that she could open herself more to the interior, uh, because there's a huge sort of push in that show to open one's mind to something that you can't quite understand, but that you should believe in. Um, it, it, it gets close to the idea of faith, but it's not quite that. Um, it's more of a, I don't know, it's more of an opening oneself up to ideas that are perhaps not immediately apparently scientifically understandable um and so much of that journey comes through hearing comes through sound and movement um and breathing and sharp inhales and exhales and at one point there's a sound recording a mysterious sound recording of the rings of saturn um the the noise the sound waves that are that are emanated from the rings of saturn from whatever's going on in that gravimetric pull um So 
I think the blindness theme in the OA is really connected to Ong's idea about oral culture and what that means and storytelling and passing along ideas and stories and so much more. And I think there's more to discuss here. Um, and we're going to get into some of that later on in the pickup line. Uh, I wanted to thank you for tuning in to today's episode. If you haven't watched the OA yet, please go check it out. We're still trying to get people to watch it and like it, and maybe one day it'll come back. Um, we'll see. Uh, in the meantime, if you have any thoughts or ideas of your own about this idea of sound being something that is inherently interior, whereas sight being something that's exterior and dissecting and sound is harmonizing and all these cool ideas, please feel free to call into the podcast. If you're listening on Anchor, you can just push that button, leave a message, and I'll respond in future episodes. Thanks so much for tuning into the pickup line today. I'm Justin, and I will see you on the next episode. Here's a little music by the midnight to close us out with. Till next time. <laughs>